Well, every once in a while you have one of those Sundays where you, uh, you put a lot of time and effort into, you know, kind of making sure everybody's on the same page and no matter how organized uh, you feel like you are, it feels like sometimes at the last moment things just kind of start to unravel. Uh, but I praise God that we have a, a group of people who are flexible. So we changed uh, venues uh, again this morning, so thank you. Hopefully we're getting the word out there um, when that happens. We will be here this Sunday and next Sunday, uh, and then we're hoping to be back at Snake River uh, at that point. Um, but we're, we're kind of giving them some more time to continue working on the facility there, so that is why we're here. Uh, but praise God that we have, you know, a place to meet throughout the week, and He's been really gracious to give us that place. So, so we're grateful for that. And then, uh, just you know, as far as communication, sometimes and things not going well, and then uh, Pastor Luke, uh, his voice uh, went bad because he got sick, and so fortunately, um, well, I wouldn't say got bad, went bad, <laughs> but. Went away. How about that? Um, so thank you for Jane for coming and, and filling in and helping out with a couple other vocals. And so just one of those times. But I, I start off that way because I want to remind all of us that that's, that's family life, right? I mean, church is supposed to be somewhat of a family. We talk about being brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are times when, as a family at home, I have to, to rally the troops together. And sometimes my kids, when I'm like, all right, it's time for a family meeting, they're like, oh, man, now what, right? Um, but sometimes we have to rally the troops and just be like, I know we're going through a time period where maybe people feel like they're tired, uh, our schedules are all over the place, and we just need to refocus a little bit. And so sometimes in the midst of chaos and it feels like uncertainties out there, it's a great time to come back and remind ourselves what it's all about. And it's not about the building. And it's not about 1030 on Sunday morning and making sure we hit that right on time. It's not about the, the practice and the setup and the teardown. It's about Christ. And, and we can celebrate and worship Christ in a park. We can do it here on the corner of 17th and 3rd. Uh, we can do it at Snake River Elementary, and if God were to move us in another location, you know what? We can do it there too, because it's about Him, and He is the one who is in charge, and He is the King and Priest of our lives and our church. And so, we're going to be taking a look at that as we go into Psalm 110 this morning. We also, because last week was was an awesome Sunday, we had baptisms, more baptisms, um, and then uh, we, you know, we did all in one service. First time we did uh, two services in one here last week. Uh, felt like it went well, so we went ahead and did that again with potential of overflow downstairs if needed. But one of the things um, is that we, we missed communion last week, and so we're going to have communion today. And, uh, and so we have Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. A lot of the psalms will make reference to Christ, or in the New Testament, they quote Psalms. And Psalm 110 is one that gets quoted regarding Jesus Christ. So just to kind of set us up a little bit, suppose you're in a courtroom and the judge is about to make his final decision. And if he finds you guilty, okay, you're fined and given time in prison. But if you're not guilty, you're out free. 
right? So in that scenario, just a quick question, how important is the judge in your life? It's probably fairly important, I would guess. I mean, that, that decision could change your life drastically. So now imagine you're standing before God, and He has the final say of what happens to you. Guilty, and you're spending eternal life in spiritual prison. Not guilty, and you're free to live with your Creator for all eternity. How important is that decision to you? Now, it's interesting because those of us who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we would say, yes, that's incredibly important to me. Um, but yet you'll still run into and maybe even have the own, our own thoughts that as we go through life, we're not really too concerned about that decision until death is at the door. A lot of people will say, like, well, i still got plenty of time to make a decision about whether or not I'm going to follow Christ or not, right? So, so I'm just going to go ahead and spend my life doing what I want to do. When in reality, Christ has told us we don't know at what time He's going to return, and we don't know when our life is going to end, and it ought to be really important to us right now. How important is that decision? Well, here's the thing, right? We're all guilty, and every one of us deserves to pay for our sins. And a good king, a good judge, would rule that we're guilty, right? There's not a single one of us. We're told that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all separated from God. We are all guilty because of sin. Every single one of us. So a good and righteous king would say, we are guilty. In fact, he did. But here's where the story shifts a little bit. Jesus Christ comes on our behalf, and he becomes a righteous, perfect human sacrifice, a substitute for us. And when he becomes that substitute for us, he becomes a priest. And as a priest, he's able to make a connection between us and God the judge, God the Father, and say that he is going to speak on our defense and declare us not guilty because of the work that he's done. It's an incredible thing, and it's what we see somewhat wrapped up in this psalm here, that God is both the king and he's the priest. He is the one who judges and rules, and he is the one who comes and speaks to our defense. How can he be both? Well, for us, that's impossible, but for God, of course, it's not impossible. So that's where we're going to be going, Psalm 110. Uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and open in prayer. I'm going to give you just about 30 seconds for you to take a moment and, and to kind of reflect on where we're going to be going, and then I'll go ahead and close. Take about 30 seconds of silence here and, uh, and pray for a moment. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you've given us your word, the Bible, and it, it speaks truth. We believe it's true. We believe every word is inspired, is breathed out by you, and it's, it's profitable for teaching, it's 
profitable for rebuking. It helps us to know who you are, what your intention is. It helps us to know that we're lost without you, but we're saved with you. And I pray that as we move into your text this morning, that you would teach us. Lord, we want it to be your words. We love you and thank you for what you've given to us. Work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Psalm 110, we're going to see how the psalm presents Jesus as both king and priest. Okay? It's fairly short, and it's written in a very common structure where you have like two bookends. And then right in the middle, you have this kind of complementary idea that's meant to be highlighted. And the two bookends tell us that Jesus is king, and right in the middle, we see that Jesus is the high priest. Now, just to kind of give you a physical uh, a reference to this. Behind me, you see the, the pallet wall that we have back here, right? That a f- few people in the church put together for us here a few weeks ago. Uh, it's all made of wood, but something stands out. What stands out in the pallet wall? The cross, right? It's made of wood, the same as the background. It's highlighted with a little bit of a light, but more than that, it's, it's going in a different direction, and it's a different size of wood, So even though there's more wood all around it, the thing that stands out is the cross. Well, you can do that in writing as well. And that's what happens in this psalm is you have at the beginning three verses that talk about who Jesus Christ is as king, three verses at the end that talk about the fact that he's king and what he's going to do, and right in the middle you have it talking about how he's the high priest. I think that idea there with verse 4 is to bring that to the surface so that we realize what he's going to do for us in the midst of being a righteous and good king as well. So it has great significance, and we need to realize that. Now, here's something to think about uh, as we move forward a little bit. We need to see Jesus for who he is and not who we want him to be. So I grew up in the more the tolerance movement. Maybe some of you did as well. And you always hear about how, you know, we need to be tolerant. And I have to admit, I think as I have reflected on evangelism and as I've thought through even preaching and teaching, it has an impact on how I approach people. There was a time period when a lot of messages were known as kind of a hellfire brimstone preaching style, right, where they come in, they talk about hell, and, and people need to repent, or they're going to hell, and, and sometimes you walk out from a church service, you feel like you're kind of beat up, and, and I remember thinking, I didn't want to be a preacher like that, I just want to teach people God's Word, but there's a reality to God's Word, and that is that sometimes we do feel beat up, because we get to see ourselves for who we really are, and we see who, who Christ is, and who God is. But the hope is that through Christ, we're saved. And we always want to give that hope to people. And so in a sense, there's, there is the side where God is a righteous and good judge, and he, judge, he judges righteously. But sometimes we paint this picture of Jesus, and, and the view we have of Jesus is maybe something that the Bible has all little, little pieces of it throughout, but that's what we focus on. For instance, you can go to churches today where Jesus is all about you, right? And you can hear about how He's there to make your life better, make you feel better. And certainly in Scripture we read that all things work together for the good of those who love Him. But as we're focused on Him and we love Him, we're going to know that what the good is, is in line with His desire and His will. Not what we want, but really what He wants. 
So we can get some, some more man-centered churches, and we can be guilty of that here as well, right? We can also get to a point where we think that Jesus is one of those like soft, tender, hearted, open-armed, ready-to-hug-you teddy bear, and he takes both the really kind kids and the screaming brats, right? And we have this image of Jesus, and, and absolutely he is an accepting and loving God, but he, he wants us to come to him with a humble heart, recognizing who we are and that we desperately need him. And that can be a little different picture at times than what sometimes we portray. But what we're going to see today is that Jesus has pieces of that, pieces of him wanting what's good for his children, pieces of him being kind and gentle and all of that, but he also has this side where he is a God who is a judge. He's a king, and he rules righteously. And he's also a priest who speaks in our defense. So the challenge is to see Jesus for who he is and not who we want him to be as we look forward into this passage. Psalm 110, verse 1, it says this, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, to give you a little bit of the background, the context here, Psalm 110 was written by King David, and it was about a thousand years before Jesus walked on the earth. It gives you a little bit of a time frame. Now, something interesting, and not all of our English translations catch this. You're going to see this in a little different way. Instead of using different words here to talk about Lord, they just use different letters or they, they capitalize or things like that. So in this one that I'm using, in most of the translations, they do this where the word in Hebrew, Yahweh, has all caps, L-O-R-D. So when you start to read, this is the declaration of the Lord, he's talking about Yahweh, and Yahweh is basically the, uh, the Hebrew name for, or proper name for Israel's God. The proper name for Israel's God, that's, that's the word Yahweh. And then he says to my Lord, which has a capital L, and then the rest of them are lower, lowercase, that's to show you and I that the Hebrew word there is not Yahweh, oftentimes something else, like in this case it's Adonai. And the word Adonai can mean uh, speaking to, to a, a God who has power or authority over or a human uh, who has some role of authority over you. And so what David is saying is, this is the declaration of Yahweh, God, over my authority over me. And he's making a reference there to something in the future. Remember, this is King David. There is no earthly authority over him at this point. He is king. So he's making a reference to something else. And that's picked up in Mark. Mark chapter 12, Jesus is now speaking. And so what had happened when the time Jesus came upon the earth is people were saying the Messiah is coming and the Messiah is going to be David or like David. And, and Jesus says, no, the Messiah is better than David. And this is the passage he uses. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit prophesying now, that the Lord declared to my Lord, there he uses that reference out of Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. Okay, a reference to my Lord there. David says, this is my Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. 
They were in awe of how he was able to teach and what he was able to say. So they understood David was making a reference to someone who was better, someone who was superior. And Jesus picks up on that to make that point. So this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I want to highlight that section because I think sometimes we gloss over it. We think, okay, did that happen at the cross when Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead? And certainly we know that when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, he had victory over death. He had victory over sin. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians. Where is sting is your victory? Where is, your, where is death? I mean, he's conquered it, right? But we also know that there are spiritual forces and there are enemies of, of Christ running around today. So we would not say that his enemies are completely surrendered to him. But it will happen. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and one seated on it, who is Christ. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each one was judged according to their works." Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now here we go forward towards the end of the the book, and we're told that there's going to be a great judgment, and at that judgment, Jesus is going to rule, and he's going to decide, and he's going to know who's written in the book of life and who's not. And at that point, you can safely say all the enemies will be under his foot. That's something that's still to happen, but we have confidence and we believe that that's going to happen because we believe what God's Word says. Now that helps us move forward into Psalm 110, 2-3, where it says, The Lord then will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. So Zion being Jerusalem in this text. And he's saying his mighty scepter, so his rule, what he rules with will extend And it'll rule over your surrounding enemies. It'll continue to go out, and he'll rule more and more. Even your people, the people who follow Christ, will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn to the dew of your youth belongs to you. So your your people will come around you. All those who are your children will come around you, and they will follow you, and they will serve you. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to go to verse 5 and skip verse 4 for a moment so you can see the two bookends. Now he moves on, he says, the Lord, and here it's Adonai again, so lowercase o-r-d, the Lord, speaking of Jesus, is at your right hand, he will crush kings on the day of his anger. Let's start to paint a picture here of a Jesus that a lot of people don't think of today. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. Look at Revelation eleven eighteen. It says, The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. There's coming a time where the judgment is going to take place by this great and mighty king. Verses 6 and 7, to end the psalm here, it says, He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. It starts to get pretty graphic now, right? (laughs) Heaping up corpses, he will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road, therefore he will lift up his head. 
That's an interesting phrase there, verse 7. Like the first time I read it, I'm like, that almost seems a little out of context. Like, what's he talking about? Taking a drink at the creek? Uh, but the idea, I think, I was reading some more in the background understanding this, is that when a, a king goes out to judge and pursue his enemy, he doesn't have much time for rest. He just has a time every once in a while to take a quick, quick drink, get his head back into the game, and keep pursuing his enemies. I think that's the idea of verse 7 there. He's pursuing his enemies. He's going out there. He's, he's going to put his enemies under his, his foot. And every once in a while, he's got to take that drink. That's a picture of, of the king here going after his enemies. So, is this the Jesus you and I think of very often? The Jesus that is the great king, the Jesus that is the great judge, the Jesus that's going to go out there, heap up corpses at the end. Look at verse 17 and 21 of Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he called out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead. Again, this is going to be pretty graphic, but here's the picture, right? You've got vultures, you've got birds circling around. Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of the horses, and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. But the beast... Speaking of Satan here, was taken prisoner, and along with the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence, he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. Hmm. Like that image? How come we don't have a movie of that, right? No, just kidding. There's probably one out there somewhere. This isn't the picture we have of our loving, gracious Savior. It's usually not the one we have in our minds. It's certainly not the ones that get painted and hung in churches most of the time. Verse 21, the rest were killed with a sword that came from the mouth of the writer. Speaking of Christ, Jesus Christ is a Savior and he's a warrior. King David, who wrote Psalm 110, is a warrior. And he was celebrated because he went out and he fought for the nation of Israel. And Jesus Christ is a warrior and he fights for his children. And he fights off the enemies. The decision for you and I then is, are we going to be on the winning side or the losing side? Are we going to know Christ and follow Him, or are we going to be the enemy? So sandwiched in the middle of those two sections is this verse. And in some ways it almost sounds like it's out of context, but I think there's a point to it. Verse 4 says, the Lord, Yahweh, has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of this guy named Melchizedek. And this guy Melchizedek, you don't see him very much in Scripture. In fact, if you go back to the original place, it's back in Genesis, and it's about Abraham. Abraham, who God made a lot of the original promises to, he was, he was coming back 
from winning a battle. And as he comes back, he meets this priest who happens to be Melchizedek, just kind of out of nowhere. And he gives them some plunder, and he worships him, and then Melchizedek disappears again until Psalm 110, and it's brought up, and then he disappears again, and then he's brought up in Hebrews. And in Hebrews, we actually get a much greater picture of this Melchizedek, and then we begin to understand, oh, this Melchizedek back in the Old Testament was actually Jesus showing up on the earth, and Abraham responding to that and worshiping him. Now, it's a form we call like the pre-incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus. So this is before he was born to, to the Virgin Mary. This happened before that. He could show up at times. And it's to establish that there is an a eternal priesthood. And he says here in Psalm 110, a thousand years before Jesus is ever born on the earth, you are a priest according to the pattern of Melchizedek. We don't know when the beginning is, and we certainly don't know when the end is, so therefore he's a forever priest line. Now this is significant because, remember, in the two bookends, you've got this righteous king who's going out and he's destroying the earth, he's destroying his enemies, and then in the middle you have hope that's that's kind of screaming out, much like behind me here, the cross that's coming out of the, the pallet wall is saying, here's the focus, focus on what Christ has done. Focused on who he is. Focused on the fact in this passage that he's a priest according to the pattern of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Well, let's take a look at 1 John 2, where here it says, My little children, I am writing you these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin. Is anybody in that category? Yeah, I'd love not to sin, but there's a reality. I do. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Verse 2, he himself is, and I'm going to add a word here because I think the Greek, it does add a word here. He is the acceptable atoning sacrifice to really get the picture in there. Oh, we didn't get it switched over to you guys, sorry. See if that'll work. He is the acceptable atoning sacrifice. The idea behind this, this word, which some of your translations might have the word propitiation, but it's that Jesus not only offered himself as a sacrifice, but God the Father accepted it. It has all of that wrapped up in that word. Okay? He is this acceptable atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. In that court scene there where you've got the judge and he can rule guilty or non-guilty and we all know that we're guilty, Jesus steps up on the scene and he says, yes, Ryan's guilty, but I died on the cross for his sins. And I am going to give him my righteousness. And God the Father, God the judge, looks at what Jesus Christ has done and he accepts that sacrifice for my sins. That's so important for us. We have to understand, and that's why I think it's, it's significant. Verse 4 just kind of jumps off. He is a priest forever, according to the line of Melchizedek, because we know that the righteous king is going to win out in the end. We know he's going to destroy his enemies. But if we are on the winning side, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ stands in our defense. And then passages like this are true. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine 
or nakedness, or danger, or sword. That's out of Romans chapter 8. Nothing can. That's what it means to have that priest speaking on our behalf. It's a great thing. So the challenge really comes back to this idea. Do you see Jesus for who he is or who you want him to be? And I have to admit, there are times as as I share Jesus with people, sometimes I paint a picture that maybe doesn't have a full, accurate view of all that he is. He is a judge. And he will pour out his wrath. And he did pour out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. And if we place our faith in him, we won't receive that wrath. It won't be poured out upon us. But if we reject Jesus Christ, then that wrath will still be poured out upon those who have not accepted him. That's a scary thing. People ought to be scared of the final judgment. So that should impact us in a couple different ways. One, if we've never placed our faith in Jesus Christ, then hopefully you're challenged to think through that a little bit and say, okay, I don't know. What, what is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a scary judge? If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, there's no reason to fear that judgment. And that's one of the ways you can find out. Have I really placed my faith in Jesus? Well, I'm still uncertain. I'm still not really sure about the future. I'm still not really sure if I've been forgiven. If that, those are questions that are going on in your head right now, then you need to come to faith in Christ. Because He's told us there is no condemnation. He's told us He's forgiven our sins. He's told us that you and I cannot be, uh, you and I will not be uh, held accountable to that because He has forgiven us for our sins. He is the one who, who has paid the price on the cross for us. Do we see Jesus that way? Do we understand him to be who he is and not who we want him to be? At the same time, if we reject him, we have to understand that he does hold us accountable to those sins, and we will have to pay the price for those sins. A couple things to end with here. Questions to ask. Is your Jesus the same as the Jesus in the Bible? If you're kind of reflecting back through and you're thinking through some of these things, is your Jesus the same as the Jesus in the Bible? Uh, I shared a little bit about my faith, and there's a development in my faith to where I I know there are times when I I want to believe maybe in a different Jesus than what I, I see, what I know, or what I've taught in the past. And I need to... I don't know, is it moving forward? Huh, okay. I'm having a problem here. Um, <clears throat> I know that... Interesting. Sorry, I get thrown off because my, my notes here don't always line up with what you guys see. Um, <clears throat> I know that I have definitely made mistakes and maybe presented him in the wrong way. And I know that I've viewed Jesus in the wrong way at times. I also know that if I was left to my own way of of saving myself, if I had to rely upon my own works, that I would not be good enough, and I would not have eternal life. And that's why I need Christ, and that's why I need Him to be that high priest for me. 
And so I hope you, you know that, and I hope you understand that. Because if you haven't come to that point in your life, then I'd ask you to do that today. The second question, are you wanting to increase your biblical understanding of Jesus? Do you want to know how? If you do, we have our response cards, and you can write a note on there. Um, and I so saw that's the second question. You'll probably have to advance it. For some reason, it stopped going forward on me here. You'll want to write a note on your response card, and we'd follow up, because we have different ways of how you can develop and grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And Oh, that's too far. So funny how it works so great, and then all of a sudden, boom, things fall apart. Uh, one of those mornings again, right? You can increase it in, in knowing who this Jesus is. If you really want to have an accurate view of him, it's important to, to increase that knowledge of who he is. So I'll give you some time to reflect upon that, and then we're going to come back together and have communion together because that's important for us. We didn't do it last week, again, because we had the baptisms and a lot of things are going on, so we bumped it back this week. We're going to celebrate communion together as a way for us to remember what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf and remember what Psalm 110 talks about, that he is this, this high priest who speaks to our defense like it speaks about in 1 John chapter 2. So take a moment, go ahead and advance it one more slide.